Hi folks, it's Josh. This episode was recorded on Saturday, April 2nd, and in the episode we speculated pretty heavily about whether A's left-handed pitcher Sean Manaya would be traded by opening day. Well, on Sunday we got our answer. John and I will be discussing the trade at length in our next episode, but first I wanted to hop on and give a brief breakdown of the trade and my immediate thoughts. So Manaya is headed to the San Diego Padres along with right-handed pitcher Aaron Holiday. So we have Manaya at 14.1 million in median trade value and right-handed pitching prospect Holiday at 0.2. They're headed to the Padres. In exchange, Oakland receives infielder Arubiel Angeles at 2.4 million and right-handed pitcher Adrian Martinez at 0.5 million. So obviously there's a very large gap there. This one was rejected by our model entirely. Um, there's there's not a great explanation, an easy explanation for why that would happen. The, the the quickest one is AJ Preller has a strong tendency to break our model. If you've been listening, if you've been following a long time, you know this, but of the 14 misses that our model has had in the last three years, the majority of them have been Preller trades. There's just something about him, something about the way the Padres work and, and the way he can negotiate with other teams that he manages to, to break the mold in a lot of ways. One other factor here, that, that could be significant is that Angeles and Martinez have not yet been updated by some of our prospect models. And one of those models, Fangraphs, uh, Eric Longenhagen, their lead prospect analyst, um, had a very interesting take on Arubio Angeles um, a year ago in, in the previous season's San Diego Padres prospect rankings. So reading from uh, his evaluation, Analyst is an interesting player who is set up to succeed statistically and, when combined with his age, perhaps get juiced in a big way by pro scouting models. He is not the sort of player who you notice getting off the bus, but Analyst has a track record of hitting in games dating back to his amateur days. He hit well in the 2019 DSL. His traditional stats are supported by the TrackMan data source from that year. So, essentially, this is a player where uh, traditional prospect evaluators are are not going to love him as much as some of the pro models will. He's been a statistical performer without necessarily the loud tools to go with it. And even even since that report, he went on to have a very strong season in low A and high A this past year um, as just a 19-year-old. So definitely a, a prospect of note. Um, wouldn't be surprised to see his value being going up in the next handful of days as we get that report from Fangraphs and other prospect sources and, and kind of get a sharper image of who he is as a prospect but it it seems likely that even with an adjustment there this one is going to be uh, even if it is accepted by the model it'll still be a pretty vast um, underpay by Oakland or excuse me an underpay by San Diego uh, which is a bit curious it makes you wonder if Oakland was particularly motivated to move Sean Manaya by opening day they didn't want to take him into the season and so even though they didn't necessarily get a fair value return. They just wanted to get him off the roster and get what they could. Perhaps they're particularly high on Angeles. Uh, there's a whole lot of things at work here. As I said, we'll be discussing this much more in depth uh, with John on the next podcast episode, but I just wanted to hop in here, uh, get that broken down, and uh, yeah, please enjoy the rest of the episode, and yeah, I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, season's right around the corner. How you doing? 
Uh, nursing a little bit of a cold, but otherwise enjoying the, the newness of spring. It's a nice day here on the East Coast and enjoying the fact that there's lots of hot stove action to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been surprising. There was a little quiet period there um, that where, where it kind of felt like, you know, guys were reporting to camp and maybe we're done talking trades for now. All the buzz on guys like Frankie Montas and Sean Manaya really quieted down and it's like, okay, are, are we done for now? What, what's going on? But we've, we've had a kind of steady churn of buzz here. You know, all the big free agents are off the board except for one and we'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, but we're, we're getting kind of a steady, a steady stream, and, and we'll talk in this episode about kind of what we expect going forward, um, whether we expect more big moves, how, how we expect the market to play out. Um, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later on. But uh, for me, I'm, you know, I got out to one spring training game this year. I'm good. That, that was, <laughs> I, I was happy with the one that I got to, and I'm definitely getting to that point where it's like, all right, I'm a, I'm a little bit over it here. Let's, let's get to the real games now, um, and, which, which makes me... Which makes it just wild that in a normal spring training, we'd have like, what, 10, 12 more games than this? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I kind of like this short in spring training. kind of feels right, you know? It's like, okay, now we're ready. And it, let's not drag it on another two weeks. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to have to see what kind of an effect it has on the players and everything. You know, whether velos are down the first few weeks of the season more so than usual. Or whether there's more injuries that kind of trickle into the season. Because up until these last few days... Um, it really seemed like a fairly healthy spring training. And I'm saying this like knocking on wood profusely, but in the first couple of weeks of spring, the only significant injuries it seemed were, you know, Oh, Jack Flaherty's shoulder is barking a little bit, but it's something he's dealt with for a while. And maybe Fernando Tatis Jr. Shouldn't ride motorcycles or should be more careful when he does. So, <laughs> and that, yeah. that was about it. And then in the last week, a, a lot of not so great news coming through, yeah. but we will, we will get to that as well. We have a jam packed episode as always. We're going to, be doing our very best to crush this one into the 90 minutes that we've been longing for for the last i don't know six seven eight episodes that we've been pushing yeah. into two hours instead so um w- without further ado let's just let's just get into things mm-hmm. um let's start off by talking about kind of the big news of today of uh today being saturday april 2nd i'm sorry i'm distracted because uh, we have breaking news on the podcast now actually uh, we have a a medium sized trade. Which uh, do you want? Do you want to hit that right now, or do you want to start with the uh, with the almost trade? Uh, did you? Are you seeing this report from Ken Rosenthal, John? Uh, no, I'm just gonna check now. So let's right, pause so, and check it out. Yeah, I'm gonna pull this up in the simulator. We, I might I might just leave this in, you know, with live reaction to a breaking. Uh, I, I guess it's a retweet of the Yankees officially announcing it. Uh, but the Yankees, I'm gonna quit beating around the bush. Yankees acquired catcher Jose Trevino from the Rangers in exchange for right-handed pitcher Albert Abreu and left-handed pitcher Robert Alstrom. Um, hmm. Knee-jerk reaction to this is, I mean, it makes sense for the Rangers to be moving Jose Trevino. They obviously brought in Mitch Garver this offseason, and they really like Jonah Heim. He's a very good receiver. And so, you know, you figure you don't necessarily need three big league catchers. Yankees, on the other hand, they don't really have a big league catcher. <laughs> they were running into the season with Ben Rortvet, who they picked up from the Twins as well as um, as well as Kyle Higashioka, who was their backup last year. And that was not looking too inspiring. Plus, Rortvet got hurt. So it makes a lot more sense, uh, a lot more sense to run into the season with at least another decent option there. Um, it looks like we don't have Alstrom in the system. 
Um, so, so with the names that we do have, it's Trevino at 3.7 million in median trade value and Abreu at zero as, as a, I guess, a non-tender candidate. Um, do you have any, any knee-jerk reaction on this, on the, on the breaking trade? Yeah. Um, it, so I get it from a sort of a needs perspective. Um, the Rangers had one too many catchers. It seemed like Trevino had been crowded out, uh, which would probably help his vote, which probably drags down his value because they probably needed it to clear the roster spot. Um, and he, as you mentioned, work that's injured. So Trevino is probably just a stopgap. Um, Abreu, I believe, is out of options. Um, and he hasn't had much success at the major league level, which is why we have him at zero. Um, just double checking that. And Alstrom seems like a very, yep, Abreu is out of options. Alstrom has not appeared on any uh, of the prospect lists that we source. So he's going to be, you know, a very low value guy when we add him. Um, so it's a little bit of an overpay to probably fill a need, is what it looks like. Yeah, he, well, well, actually it's, well, well you say overpay, but it, it's an overpay in the opposite direction. So the Yankees are filling a need and, and not giving up a whole lot, it seems like, unless you're unless you're saying that the need is for is for the Rangers to clear out a catcher there. That's that's kind of where I was going for. Sorry, I'm okay. not clear that. Gotcha, gotcha. Looks like Alstrom was a seventh round pick and he has not pitched in affiliated ball quite yet. Yeah. Uh, it does not appear. Yeah. But okay. yeah, fun stuff. Not not a nothing huge, but yep. figured it would it was worth mentioning as it happened right there. Um, Perfect. And, and after after this episode I'm Assuming John will hop on getting Alstrom into the system, and, and as he said, don't expect a whole ton of value there. So mm-hmm. uh, this one, even even with Abreu as a zero and nothing else on that side, it's accepted by the model as a minor overpay, and that, that's probably what it'll end up as. But still, accepted by the model, it makes sense. Not a whole lot of value in kind of a second catcher type in Trevino. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all of that aside, let's get into uh, <laughs> where I was heading right now which was talking about the, the big trade that almost happened today. So as, as I was starting to say, we're recording on Saturday, April 2nd, and the buzz from from late last night all throughout today was about a potential deal between the San Diego Padres and the New York Mets involving Eric Hosmer. So the framework of the deal, as it was reported, was going to the Mets would be Hosmer, who we have at negative 50.7 million in trade value, Chris Paddock, starting pitcher, 17.4, Emilio Pagan, right-handed reliever at zero, and as well as $35 million in cash to cover Hosmer's contract, uh, to, to cover a chunk of Cosmer's contract, I should say. So that comes out to $1.7 million total in, uh, in trade value heading to the Mets. And in exchange, the Padres would be receiving Dominic Smith, first baseman, corner outfielder, at $1.4 million. So there, there were some different permutations of this that were being reported, and, and eventually, you know, Pagan's name popped up, and, and the cash was kind of... The, the real cash value was haggled out. And so what what it seems like they finally, like kind of the final terms of the proposed deal was almost perfectly fair by our model, 1.7 to 1.4. So would have been accepted very easily and with a range there for even if the cash was a little off or there was another player that didn't get reported or something like that. Like it was going to be accepted by the model. It was looking like a fair deal on paper. Uh, but most recent reports are that it's off fell through completely not going to happen. I mean, we've seen stranger things. It, it could come back to life in some way, shape or form, but as of now it seems safe that, to say that it is off. And I can see why. I, I think this is a good example of why, you know, just because it lines up in our model and the numbers seem to work and it seems to be equal value heading in each direction. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a trade that would be beneficial for both teams that makes sense for both teams i'm not sure i understand this trade fully from i mean i understand let me let me rephrase i understand the trade but i'm not sure i i think it's a good move for either team involved uh, but especially more so for the padres um so first looking at the mets end of it uh, we will get into uh, a little bit later some of the injuries that are hitting their starting rotation most notably to jacob de so they are going to be without him for a little bit to start the season um as potentially as much as a couple months depending on how long things go and so in this deal they the the prize of the deal for them is obviously chris paddock um who has had his own questions but the mets are reportedly just very high on him and they think they can fix him you know there's some doubts in the industry about the padres pitching development and so maybe he's a big change of scenery candidate and they really they really believe they could make him into a solid mid-rotation arm, something along those lines. And, and his $17.4 million in trade value reflects that there's still plenty of upside there. Um, and then they're also adding a decent reliever in Emilio Pagan, albeit one without any real surplus here. And the cost to them is taking on what amounts to, you know, 15, uh, excuse me, what amounts to $25 million, is that, of, uh, of Eric Hosmer's contract? Let me pull up his uh, contract values right here. Yeah, so Hosmer uh, has $60 million owed to him over the next four years, and so the uh, Mets would be owing him 25 of that $60 million in this in this framework. So not that he's he's not a, a valuable player. He is, His field value over those four years is expected to be 9.3. It's estimated to be $9.3 million, and that's not a whole lot. He's a first baseman with – he's kind of got a glove, doesn't have much of a bat, and, and that's not going to get you very far. Um so so really for the Mets it's it's a lot of you know it, it's paying 25 million dollars for the rights to Chris Paddock and Emilio Pagan and, and they're losing Dominic Smith I don't think I love that and then on the Padres side of things where I think things are even murkier here they're giving up a pretty valuable piece of pitching depth for them in Paddock as well as a serviceable reliever in Pagan and they're only getting out of $25 million of the contract. And, and it kind of depends on how things are structured uh, because his contract is fairly front-loaded. Uh, Hosmer will be earning $20 million this year and then $13 million each of the next three years. Um, so it, it kind of depends which which money they'd still be on the hook for versus what money the Mets would still be on the hook for. You could uh, there's, there's permutations where it could work. You know, maybe they're trying to clear all of the 2022 uh, salary his 20 million so that they can then go out and sign Michael Conforto to a one-year deal or something along those lines I could I could maybe squint and see that making sense but otherwise I just I just I feel like the the only I, I've been saying since the beginning that I didn't think the Padres would find a way to move Hosmer I, I just didn't seem like too realistic to me but I think the only realistic way that you could is if you're attaching one of the big prospects to him you know Robert Hassel is the main name but potentially Luis Camposano one of those guys um that, that's the only way it makes sense to me because you can move him you get all all or most of his money off the books and you can allocate that toward the big league team and you're not subtracting from the big league team to do it because uh, that's obviously the motivation the Padres window is right now they want to win right now but any deal like this that's potentially taking from the big league team and not actually saving you that much money and not adding a whole lot to the big league team in return since Dominic Smith isn't quite as highly regarded as he used to be, I, I don't like it for them. So I've been talking for a few minutes straight now. John, what's what's your take on this and, and maybe why it didn't go through? 
So first of all, from the Mets' perspective, obviously with the news of Jacob deGrom's injury, which looks reasonably significant, he's going to miss probably at least two months, if not more. They needed help on the pitching side, and there's not a whole lot of options. You've got Montaz and Manaya available from the A's, but those would require giving up prospects. And I remember Sandy Alderson saying a year or two ago that they don't want to give up prospects because they their farm isn't as strong as it could be, and so they want to save their prospects. I know they've gone back on that a little bit, but they're probably loath to to trade prospects, which is what it would require in a Montaz Manaya deal. So in this case, but the, what they can do because Steve Cohen owns the team is spend money and so they can take on a bad contract to get a guy like chris paddock who has major league experience obviously and may arguably still have some upside so that they can fill that hole that's left by Degrom's uh, injuries and so that was the draw um and that was the way to do it is to take on hosmer's contract obviously you had to make the numbers work and i'm glad to see that the uh and josh I'm glad you corrected the numbers because there were lots of people taking Rosenthal and others at their word thinking it was only 25 million, but it was 35 million. So so that made the values make a lot more sense because we were thinking earlier in the day, oh my gosh, is there another piece coming or is the number wrong? So now we've got that straightened out. So it's just a better matter of the needs. But the other thing that doesn't make sense to me is Chris Paddock had a UCL tear at the end of last year. And so he's a question mark from a health perspective. If you're the Mets, the last thing you want to do is risk is take the risk on yet another sort of potentially injured arm when you've got DeGrom's issues. Scherzer's got a bulky hamstring. It's probably minor, but you know, who knows? And, you know, Carrasco's been out with all kinds of injuries and hasn't really been the same as he used to be. Taiwan Walker sort of fell apart in the last half of last year. So, like... Thank goodness they traded for Chris Bassett because he's the only one who looks solid at the moment. And so you don't want to kind of go to all this trouble for another question mark, <clears throat> even though you may be, he may be okay and he may be able to like get the best out of him. So I think that's one speculative reason why it, it didn't go through. But there was another report that said, oh, once they get Hosmer, they would flip him to the Cubs. And so then I'm wondering if there was a dependency on that. Maybe the Cubs Back, backed off for some reason. I can't figure out why the Cubs would want Hosmer unless they wanted a prospect attached. And so um, maybe there was a snag there. Um, I can't begin to speculate. Um, it's not a perfect deal. It always felt to me like, okay, they can make the numbers work, but I don't know. Now, from the Padres' perspective, they've been dying to get rid of Hosmer's contract, even if they you know, can get him out because they're they're motivated by money and motivated by he's blocking a spot on the roster. So they want to clear that roster space for a more productive bat because they've got issues with their offense. So Dom Smith's coming off a terrible year, but maybe they see a little more upside in him. He's arguably had a really good, you know, uh, pandemic shortens 2020 and then he fell back to earth in 2021 he was really awful in 2021 struck out a ton and was a negative war player so, but maybe they feel like okay a change of scenery would help him so i don't know i think the main motivation for them was to get rid of the the hosmer contract and the roster spot and at least take a little bit of a flyer on dom smith and i think they probably know Paddock's health issues more than other teams. Maybe that's what the snag was. Maybe his medicals didn't check out too well. So maybe the Mets backed off. I don't know. Uh, but that's I think the Padres would have gotten the better end just from a needs perspective, even the values matched up, uh, just because those question marks about Paddock's health and, you know, a change of anybody 
you know, would be better than Hosmer, who also, you kind of sort of get the sense that he's he's sort of on the outs with the team, and so you kind of want to make that change if you can. So um, they would have benefited more from those sort of baseball reasons, clubhouse reasons, other reasons, not just the value. Um, so I think they were the more motivated party, so I'm not surprised if it turns out that the, it was the, uh, the Mets backing out. I think I've... I've come up with a better way to frame this, um, what I am what I was trying to say earlier. Um, Eric Hosmer, with the way that his contract is front-loaded, if you're the Padres and you're trying to move him, it's because you want to get out from as much of that 2022-20 million as you can. Because after that, it's it's three years at 13 million a year. Obviously, not great. You, you don't want to be paying a guy who's essentially a replacement level, slightly above maybe, you don't want to be paying him $13 million a year. That's that's an overpay for sure, and he's almost entirely underwater in those three years. But it's also not going to completely tank your budget, even for you know a team like the Padres that has historically run smaller budgets. That's not going to kill you. And if he's blocking a guy, well, shoot, DFA him. You don't need to... You don't need to keep him around if you really have given up all hope on him providing major league value and you, and you want a better bat there. So, I mean, they're, it's clear that their priority for moving him is to clear that money in 2022 so that they can use it elsewhere on the roster. Because when you look going forward, Will Myers comes off the books after this season. That's his $20 million contract is off the books. And so that's some money that you can spend, plus the $7 million dip from $20 million to $13 million in Hosmer's contract. That's a good amount of money opening up and a Granted, there's arbitration increases and other salary considerations as well, but that's a decent amount of money opening up to give you some flexibility going forward, even if you do have to pay his entire $13 million for the next three years. But this year, it seems like they're right at the brink and they have some additions they need to make. You know, their outfield picture is still kind of shaky. It's not looking too good. I mean, Nomar Mazzara has a chance to make the team, I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if he's still in camp with them specifically, but he's he's at least a considerable member of their depth, and he might get some at-bats this year, and that's not where you want to be, really. So uh, your, your, your priority is to move the $20 million for 2022. But who's really out there that makes it worth it? I mean, Conforto's really the one guy. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot of trade market options. I mean... We'll talk about him a little later. Maybe Austin Meadows. Brian Reynolds is going to cost you so much in terms of prospect capital. There was some buzz on that this week, but it just, it, and, and we will talk about that later as well, but it just seems unlikely that that'll come through. And so I think if I'm the Padres, I can get behind the approach of, okay, we're going to use Hosmer primarily as a platoon bat. I know it's not ideal. I know he's not very good, but he's stuck here. Might as well see if there's anything in the tank. And when you look at it, Eric Hosmer for the three months, four months until the trade deadline, whatever it ends up being, he might be, you know, a win and a half, two wins worse projected over those few months than a guy like Michael Conforto, who, who they can have instead. But the benefit they get is that they get to see whether they're competitive or not. And if the Padres aren't competitive, then, okay, we, we hang on to Hosmer and we also hang out to the young, uh, young talent that it would cost us to get his contract off the books. But if they are competitive and they really want to make additions and they can't because they're up against that, uh, their their budgetary limits, then they can go ahead and pull that trigger. And with the added bonus that there's there's less of his contract remaining technically, and so depending on how they work it out, maybe it costs them less prospect capital to move him. 
I hope that made sense. But basically what I'm saying is that their priority for Hosmer is that $20 million contract in 2022. Right now, I don't see a whole lot of benefit to them getting it off the books, at least not enough to justify what it's going to cost them to get it off the books. And so it makes sense to maybe wait and see and, and, and kind of reassess where they are later in the season. Yeah. You and I have both kind of taken close looks at the Padres and they really are kind of stuck with in terms of what they can move and what they can't. So, you know, there was rumors earlier in the week that Brian Reynolds was in play and the Padres were trying to acquire him. But that one made less sense to me because we know how high a price tag Reynolds has with four years of cheap control and, you know, he's a five-war player and so on. So um, they don't have the prospect capital that, that the Pirates would want, um, you know, in that in that scenario. So um, they're trying anything and everything to swing a deal and nothing's working out because they don't have much ammo. They don't have they don't, they're stuck up against a budget. They've kind of run up against their limit on prospect capital unless they really want to break break their strategy and and move a Hassel or an Abrams, which is what it would take, by the way, to get to get uh, four years of rentals. So they are stuck. It's interesting to see Preller trying to swing a deal, you know, in this position where he doesn't have a whole lot of ammo and nothing's working. And in that sense, it's not surprising me. My last note on the Padres, because we, we have to get on to our other topics for today, but the other position that, that really needs to be addressed right now is catcher. If they are so hurting for money, I'm really still scratching my head as to why Preller went out and picked up Jorge Alfaro from the Marlins prior to the lockout. They have a really crowded catching situation right now. Nola's their starter. He's solid and cheap, okay, but Jorge Alfaro doesn't have any options, and he's making money they went out and picked him up i guess they could just dfa him and they'd only have to pay a portion of his arbitration contract but is that really what they're going to do after they intentionally went out of their way to grab him if not okay victor caratini's there he has an option left but he's also making a few million but he's also you darvish's kind of personal catcher now so i mean maybe maybe he's not a great trade candidate and they also have Luis Camposano, who we mentioned that, you know, top prospect who's going to, if all goes well, he should be MLB ready at some point this season. So there's a crowded thing there. If they're going to make a deal, I think it makes more sense to make it from there. But again, they're, they're just kind of stuck because of that group, you'd say, okay, move Alfaro. But it seems like they like Alfaro. Okay, move Caratini. But they like Caratini as, as Darvish's yeah. backup. So yeah. I, I can't say I can predict what's going to happen there either, but I can say... I'd be pretty surprised if, you know, a week or two from now, all four of those catchers are still with the organization. Yeah, I, I think they like Alfaro as a DH. Uh, he's been swinging the bat pretty well in spring training. People have noticed. Uh, BA, Baseball America just did a piece on guys who scouts have noticed, and he was on the list. Um, so maybe you can just swing him as a DH, play a little left field, which I know he's bad at, but, you know, you can get him in the, get his bat in the lineup. I think Camposano is the one that obviously has to be moved to clear roster space on the 40. I think everyone else in the industry knows that, though, so they're going to lowball on offers for Camposano. And so that's another reason why Freller is stuck. So, yeah, I don't know. Something's got to give somewhere. Absolutely. All right, let's talk to the, about the deals that actually happened. Starting with one that just happened this this uh, week as well that we hit the nail on the head with here. So there was a straight one-for-one one trade between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Chicago White Sox. It was right-handed reliever Craig Kimbrell heading to the Dodgers at negative 1.0 in median trade value. 
And outfielder AJ Pollock heading to the White Sox, also at negative 1.0 median trade value. And no cash exchanging hands, so the entirety of the $16 million that Kimbrell is owed, the Dodgers are taking on, that's just 2022 salary. Pollock, on the other hand, I believe it's, it's uh, is it $10 million in 2022 and, and $5 million on a buyout for 2023? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So 15 yeah. total. Yeah, so the, the cash is almost identical going both ways, and it fits obvious needs for each team. After losing Kenley Jansen, the Dodgers didn't have a closer, so Kimbrell can slot in there. Uh, the, the whole issue with Craig Kimbrell that he seemed to blame his White Sox struggles on last year was that he wasn't given the ninth inning, and that's just where he's more comfortable. He's an old-fashioned closer in that way. So the Dodgers are saying, sure, we'll give it to you, which is a bit odd. Maybe we can talk about that, but... <laughs> Uh, such an advanced team like the Dodgers is just fine doing that. Um, and then on the uh, on the White Sox side of things, they've had some injuries early on in camp. Plus, they're still just kind of missing a, a real corner outfielder. Uh, they they were planning on running out some Gavin Sheets and Andrew Vaughn, and both of those guys are really more first base TH types. Uh, but now Pollock, who was pretty solid last year actually when when he was healthy, uh, he can go out there and he's he's still not. Not a gold glover by any means, but he's a much more capable corner outfield glove than any of those guys, and he can hit a little bit. So it's it's a trade that very well fits the needs of both teams, ends up being cash neutral, and almost or ends up being pretty much identical on a trade value standpoint. Exactly. Each player was minus one in, in surplus value, which, hey, it doesn't happen very often, but, you know, <laughs> coincidence probably, but uh, we'll take it. Um, it looks nice on paper. Um, and I think it's a fit for both teams. I really like this trade. I think the Dodgers can make use of Kimbrell. I think he'll like it there. And I think Pollock will fit a need for the White Sox in right field. So it's, it's, it's a win-win from every angle. Um, you know, and I will say, um, I think it's clear that, you know, the White Sox overpaid for Kimbrel at the deadline. And uh, then they found out when they had to turn around and shop him after he didn't do so well in Chicago that um, it was hard to find a taker for him. So the only way to do that was to create, uh, was to, uh, you know, finagle a deal with another guy who the Dodgers apparently had been shopping as well, sort of in the same boat. I mean, I think there was a domino effect with the Dodgers lineup after they signed Freddie Freeman. And... You know, um, they all obviously like to move players around the diamond defensively. So Pollock was one of those guys whose contract they can move. I also read a report that, you know, one of the reasons why they didn't re-sign Kenley Jansen is because they, even though they're the Dodgers and they don't seem to care about money, it turns out that they do care about it a little bit. Like they didn't want to go over the, the Cohen tax, the 290 limit. And so if they had just added yet another $16 million on top of Pollock and everybody else's contracts that they have, it would have put them over. And so what they were trying to do is move Pollock. And so the net uh, increase in salary here is only, you know, is only six for this this year instead of 16 if they had to re-sign Jansen. So from that standpoint, I think that was the motivation for the Dodgers. So and look, it works out for everybody. Happy for them. Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about the trade that brought Kimbrel to the White Sox and look back on that and how wildly off it was by by our model and we discussed it at length at the deadline so i won't go too far into it but basically uh, the, the, the deal was was kimbrell for nick madrigal and cody hoyer uh, nick madrigal former top infield prospect and cody hoyer a solid right-handed reliever young uh, young reliever if that had been so so we we both kind of came to the conclusion that 
it was just a lopsided trade. You know, no matter what way you look at it, even if you think our model was high on Madrigal and high on Hoyer and low on Kimbrell, it still was off. Like there's there's no way that it was that wrong on all three of those guys that it was it was a fair deal. So so we were comfortable at the time and we're even more more comfortable now saying that, yeah, that was that was a lopsided deal. That was an overpay. Uh, but if you are still in belief that that wasn't an overpay, that it was a fair deal, I, I think this is pretty substantial proof that it wasn't. Because if that was fair at the time, then there's no way that just 20 bad innings from Craig Kimbrell or, or whatever it was tanked his value to the point that all he's worth now is one AJ Pollock. Like, right. like right. that that would be absurdly drastic and i mean i we, we know how volatile relievers are and how volatile their value can be but you know 20 bad i say 20 bad innings just, just you know pulling that number off the top of my head i can i can go look up what he's his actual um white Sox numbers were but 20 bad innings from a reliever isn't actually 20 bad innings it's like four or five blow-ups mixed in with you know 15 normal innings so like that that's not yeah. enough to tank a guy's value quite that much yeah so it was 23 innings for Kimbrel with the White Sox of a 5.09 ERA but with a 373 xFIP so I don't know it, it, it yeah. this is just confirmation to to me it, and I think it, you agree yeah it is and um it's notable to me that um, we you know, we tend to see those outliers a little bit more often at the trade deadline uh, for two reasons, I think. One is, you know, teams can get a little desperate if they're really trying to go for it. They will overpay. You know, you think of the Aroldis Chapman deal or, you know, the Eloy Jimenez deal. Um, those were... Um, you know, those were win now moves. And so the so the error of ours can go a little bit farther in one direction or the other at the deadline. Whereas in the off season, I think people are more sober and they're like, okay, what's he really worth? <laughs> and and it kind of comes back to normal. So it's like a volatile stock market chart a little bit um, where the numbers are sort of, you know, a little more stable and even in the off season. Then they get a little bumpy at the deadline. And so um, I think there was a little bit of that happening as well. Definitely. All right. The other significant deal we have to talk about this time is the Blue Jays acquired outfielder Rymel Tapia. We had at 0.0 million in median trade value, as well as infield prospect Adrian Pinto at 1.6 from the Colorado Rockies in exchange for outfielder Randall Gritchick at negative 12.2 million and cash, which was reportedly 9.7 million. This one was accepted by the model as a moderate overpay by the Rockies. The, the Rockies received negative 2.5 million in trade value, whereas the Blue Jays received positive 1.6. There are some there, there there is a caveat to there when it comes to Tapia, and I'll let John explain that one. But it's it's really a move for the Blue Jays to move a little bit of salary, get a left-handed outfield bat that they were pushing for. You know, they were in discussions with Brett Gardner at at a point before this trade. Uh, but Tapia, a little bit younger, and and he, he's just going to be a fourth outfielder for them, but they were really looking for some left-handed balance. They have a pretty right-handed lineup there. And they picked up an interesting prospect in Pinto that a lot of people after this trade wrote about how much they liked him. I believe he's a, he's a teenager who just posted, like, eye-popping numbers in really low levels of the minor leagues. And, you know, he's a short, uh, like, plate discipline, overpower, middle infielder type guy. Um, who a lot of prospect evaluators seem to like right now. So it's an interesting pickup for them. And then from the Rockies' standpoint, they didn't really have a true center fielder. Uh, Sam Hilliard was projected to to start there, and that's not ideal for a team that seems like it wants to win. We can we can debate that one. But 
Grichik is is also not necessarily a true center fielder, but he probably becomes the best defensive center fielder on that roster, and unless you're talking about maybe Chris Bryant there, but they seem pretty set on leaving yeah. him in left field. So that's that's kind of their standpoint on it. Um, do you want to explain kind of the the Rymel Tapia of it all? Yeah. So look, he's he's still uh, in his arbitration years, right? So the way arbitration contracts work is they're not guaranteed. Uh, you can actually cut him and only pay him one sixth of his salary. So because of that optionality, if you will, um, so his his actual uh, field value is two point two and his salary is three point nine. So he's negative one point seven. If you guarantee it, like if you decide to roster him and play him through the year, you're getting negative value, you know, performance relative to salary, which is what we base the the, uh, the values on. So it's actually uh, much closer than it already is because of that. You can, if you measure it by that number, it's minus 1.7. If you keep Toppy on the roster, then it makes perfect sense. It's it's almost dead even. Um, but we listed it zero because they have the option to not pay him. And so one could argue that, you know, there's no value there at all because you could just cut them loose. So uh, we listed it zero for that reason. But if the Blue Jays keep them, they're really getting negative 1.7 in actual value. So it kind of lines up that way. The two caveats to that are that they would have to cut him before the season, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. They would have to mm-hmm. release him prior to the start of the season. And then this is the final year that that rule is in effect. Uh, part of the new CBA was that that rule is no more and that arbitration contracts will become fully guaranteed uh, going forward. But but because it was kind of middle of the offseason, uh, 2022 still follows those non-guaranteed arbitration rules. And just from a common sense standpoint, look, they probably wouldn't have traded for him if they weren't planning on rostering him. So they're just eating that value. So it makes sense. And then values line up when you look at it that way. Yep. Okay, so that's all that we have from you know our more significant transactions for this week um, as far as trades go. Uh, w- if we have time at the end, we'll get to a few more of the uh, minor deals that went through of you know design- DFA'd players. Uh, but there were also some significant extension transactions this week, and two in particular that we want to point out um, were were regarding significant uh, trade chips, uh, names that were rumored about a trade for a while. Um, both on the Arizona Diamondbacks, the biggest one was Ketel Marte, uh, their second baseman, whose new trade value is down from, uh, I believe, like roughly 20, or excuse me, roughly 37 million, now down to 27 million. Uh, given the new contract, he, the the new contract that he negotiated guaranteed his two option years, which were both fairly affordable. Um, for 2023 and 2024, and then tacked on three years at the end, I believe, including an option as well on top of those. Um, and, and it's a very affordable contract, but it kind of just goes to explain kind of why his value was limited and why the D-backs didn't end up trading him, why they weren't able to get a return that they liked enough. It's because he has, you know, just looking past what he can produce on the field, there are some issues there. He's been a little bit injury prone. As a second baseman, we've discussed at length that that's that's one of the least valuable positions on the field. They don't receive either on the free agent market or in the trade market. They aren't valued as highly as other positions. And with him as a combination of his injuries and and maybe not having the strongest arm, he isn't really an outfielder anymore. So he's kind of stuck at second base only. And so that limits his value a little bit. And with that and the injuries, it it just he, he wasn't as valuable as a as you'd expect from a guy who can hit as well as he does. Um, so pulling up the full contract here, 
he gets a $3 million signing bonus, and then salaries of $11 million, $13 million, $16, 16 and 14 through 2027, as well as a $13 million option for 2028 with a $3 million buyout. Uh, so in total, it's, it's announced as a five-year, $76 million extension. So very fair money. Um, he, you could argue that maybe he leaves a little bit on the table, but he seemed like he really wanted to stay in Arizona. He found kind of a new home here with the D-backs. And from their standpoint, I think it makes all the sense in the world to hang on to him. If you're not going to get a haul in return for him, then, you know, the D-backs have a really strong farm. They don't really necessarily have any significant positions of need on the farm. And it's really just kind of in this sit and wait period for waiting for guys like Alec Thomas and Corbin Carroll and some of their young pitchers to push their way onto the scene uh, for them to be able to make the next good D-backs team. And so why not just keep Marte around and let him be a part of that, let him kind of lead that new team. So I, I like this a ton for them. I think it makes a lot of sense, and it, 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 does, it doesn't necessarily entirely take him off the board as a trade candidate. He doesn't have a no-trade clause, but it makes it a whole lot less likely, at least for the next six months to a year. Yeah, after all that trade chatter, it surprised a, a, probably a few people that they decided to go this direction and lock him up long term instead. I and good for them and good for him as well. I mean, typically in these um, extensions where you're farther away from free agency, it's um, it's a win. It, it's there's surplus value on the table is what I'm trying to say. You know, they're not going to pay him market value. Market value typically happens in extensions where the player in his final year of the contract and he's so close to free agency that he's thinking, okay, I'll stay if you pay me what I would get in free agency. And then they work it out. But if you sign a contract, you know, at least two years out or before or three year even, you're taking a little bit off the table for security reasons if you're the player. And so the the team is getting the benefit of the doubt as well because they're getting some surplus and a little wiggle room, you know, if he gets injured or doesn't perform, you know, especially with these longer term deals. So now they have Marte for six years. So our numbers line up at uh we estimate his performance value at 111.4 his salary is total 84.4 so his surplus now is 27. now we could be a little bit conservative because as he ages he's 28 going his 28 year old season now you know um that we've already got the agent aging curve bank uh <clears throat> baked in but we've only adjusted for the position a little bit i mean if we took a more aggressive approach to the positional adjustment for second baseman that surplus number would go down probably closer to zero so you could argue that there's wiggle room there depending on how you interpret that second base market between a maximum surplus not say maximum but an estimated surplus of 27 all the way down to zero depending on you know the market we've seen a lot of underpays you know both in terms of free agency and in trades with people like cesar hernandez and colton wong and adam frazier you know he's better than those guys because he's more athletic and he can sort of fake it in center field although it's less likely now but he's pretty much second base only at this point so it is an apt comparison to say yeah maybe there's not that much surplus in reality even though on paper we have it about this right so i think this is right for now until we see further evidence that it would need to go down my long story short is it's it's a reasonably fair deal for both sides yeah i would certainly agree and i think it ties in well to the other one that i want to talk about also with the d-backs it's Merrill Kelly, who they just recently extended to a two-year, $18 million uh, contract. It's a $1 million signing bonus and then a straight $8 million in each of the next two seasons, 2023 and 2024, as well as a 2025 club option uh, worth $7 million with a $1 million buyout. So 
this this one I think caught people off guard just as much as the uh, as the Cattell Marte because there was starting to be a little bit of buzz of oh if, if teams are looking for a starting pitcher why not Merrill Kelly you know he's not going to knock your socks off but he's an interesting you know a pretty reliable back end arm he came over from overseas I believe NPB was it or KBO I always forget with guys like this it was the KBO uh, so he came over from the KBO and was immediately pretty solid for the D-backs and this spring especially I, he's throwing even harder and he's had a really good spring training um so they they decided you know maybe this is partially a bet on that but even if it's not eight million dollars for a back-end arm even if he is entering his mid-30s that's fine that's that's market rate if not a little bit below so we have him now having uh excuse me i lost the tab we have him now at 3.9 million in median trade value so still a little bit of surplus on top of that one and still incredibly tradable uh on, on the other hand though this is a guy who has really just been an arizona lifer he went to high school college here arizona state university go devils uh he <laughs> he went uh overseas obviously with the kbo but then came back to pitch for the d-backs so he's he's an arizona guy i wouldn't be shocked to see him finish out this whole contract here but if they get enough hits on him and he really breaks out or something like that uh it, it's still very movable eight million dollars is super reasonable for him yeah so i mean the numbers are is estimated field value is 26.2 for those four years so you know that's not a lot he's a back-end ish starter you know that's a roughly like if you were a free agent that's valuing it roughly seven and a half seven seven and a half well no six and a half seven something like that per year uh for four years you know commit to a guy for four years you're gonna take a little bit off table because of the risk uh, and he's getting 22.3 so there's only 3.9 in surplus yeah they could trade him but it seems like they like him to kind of you know eat innings hold the fort for a while until the young pitchers come up which i can see so another one off the table yeah, and then the one other extension I want to just briefly mention here is the Colorado Rockies locking up uh, Ryan McMahon to a six-year, $70 million deal. This one kind of raised a lot of eyebrows, and it did initially raise my eyebrows as well, <laughs> just because this is a guy who hasn't put up an average, even, offensive season when you're looking at OPS+, plus or WRC+. Plus. He's been a slightly below average bat. Uh, but obviously a very good glove, and he brings some positional versatility, and I think there's reason to believe that there's more in, in the tank when it comes to the bat. Um, and, and so, you know, after more consideration and after listening to some takes from, from some other folks, yeah, feels feels pretty reasonable, and, and the values agree. We have him, again, just slightly uh, slightly above value at $3.6 million. Uh, this one's buying out a handful of arbitration years, just a couple free agent years, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that one because I know it, it got a lot of buzz on Twitter when it happened, but it seems reasonable uh, according to our model. Yeah, and I, I like it because he's entering his 20, age 27 season, which is typically the peak, you know, so, and certainly the, um, you know, the popular projection systems understand this as well. So Zips projects him for 2.1, uh, War Steamer for 2.2. They have him as an average bat at 100 uh, WRC plus. Interestingly, um, his ex woba last year was 324. The average was 313. So he's a little bit above average from that measure. And also in 2019, he was as well. So there may be a little something else going on there offensively. He put up two and a half war last year. Uh, solid player. Um, 
coming into his prime. I like it from that standpoint. It's not like, you know, he's in his 30s. They're, they're going to catch him while he's kind of entering his prime year. So I think that's good. Yeah, and he was actually a four-win guy if you use B-War. Uh, they liked his defense yeah. even more. So I, I, I definitely see the argument there. If you just think he's going to be a solid defender and you, and you believe in the bat, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's not something that's worth really criticizing the Rockies for there's there's plenty of other options if you want to do that yeah (laughs) all right last transaction uh that we want to talk about for this week is just very briefly today the Angels announced they are designating Justin Upton for assignment uh he hasn't made the team despite a decent spring Uh, he's on the final year of his large contract Um, he's owed 28 million dollars this season seems pretty likely that they're gonna have to release him and eat all that money and he I think he has a shot to sign on somewhere at the major league minimum, uh, which is which is what he would receive if he did sign on somewhere else. Um, if you look at, I mean, obviously there's sentimental reasons there involved, but if, if Albert Pujols is getting a guaranteed roster spot at two and a half million to basically be a hit left-handed pitchers platoon DH kind of guy, I think Upton serves that role just as well, if not better. So. I, I think he he lands somewhere. Don't know where yet, but he it's 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 worth noting that he was cut loose. That they didn't find any takers. They never really looked into it. Doesn't seem like uh, packaging prospects to get out from under the contract or anything. It seems you know kind of similar to Pujols last year. They're just cutting ties at the end here. Yeah. So it, a couple of implications here. One. So our model has him at, at field value of two point one. So against the seller 28, so that's a negative 25.9 surplus. That's why they couldn't move him. No one's obviously taking that contract. But assuming that he um, clears waivers, which everyone expects him to do, then any team can sign him for the league minimum of 700. So 2.1 field value minus 0.7, you've got a little bit of surplus there, 1.4. I could see a couple of teams taking a flyer on him that way. I could see the Rays been looking uh, for a right-handed bat. He does have some interesting statistics against lefty bats. So as a short side platoon guy at league minimum, why not? Uh, you know, even a team like the A's, who are you building, you know, could pick him up for cheap and maybe flip him at the deadline. Just use him smartly. Um, so I could see that. I mean, the Yankees, you know, made a play for Rodor last year and, are, you know, they, you know, where the Rangers played all the contract. It's a slightly different situation there, but basically they got him for free and made some use out of him. And so I can see some team doing that. You mentioned Pujols as well. Uh, Dodgers got a little use out of him. I think something like that will happen. Um, the other implication here is that the Angels seem, it's a vote of confidence for both Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh. I think they're two hot young outfielders to kind of, um, join Mike Trout in the outfield there and, and presumably Mike Trout is now over his health issues as well. So you're looking at, you know, it seems likely you're looking at an out, outfield in, in Anaheim of Trout, Marsh, and Adele. And so they're going young and good for them. Yeah, good points all around. Uh, I think the Rays are a shrewd pick there. Um, and we might talk about them mm-hmm. a little bit later, but you're right. They've been looking for a right-handed bat for a while. And, and good catch. I, I definitely said 500k earlier. Uh, just my my brain is not updated yet. That's still what I'm assuming is the is the big league minimum, but it's not. It's 700k now. Um, and the interesting thing yeah. with something like that is that, you know, he has his pick of every team that that wants him, and and it kind of takes contract out of it as you know as an incentive. So he can really go where he wants to among the teams that want him, since he's only going to get this cap of 700000 
So whether it's, you know, the team that's going to give him the most playing time or the team that gives him the best chance to win, whatever he personally prefers, uh, it's kind of an equalizer here. So I, I could see a team like the A's running into an issue with that where I, I definitely see, I, I think they should have interest and should look into it. Their their first base DH options are looking uninspiring. I, I think the A's are going <laughs> to be terrible this year. That is that is my oh, call. Yeah. I, have, I have no faith in this team. No, it's going to be ugly. an amazing dumpster fire to watch. But their, their first base DH <laughs> options right now, Eric Thames, Dalton Kelly, Billy McKinney, Stephen Vogt, Jed Lowry. Some yeah. some combination of those guys is going to take up those two spots. It seems like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I understand. <laughs> I understand having Lowry and Vote on the team. You know, they're they're more of clubhouse guys than anything else. Uh, any any field value they give you is kind of a is a bonus. But the rest of that. Uh, at least a guy with Upton, you can squint and maybe get like a relief prospect for him at the deadline from a contender that yeah. needs a guy in that role. So I, I'd love the fit there. It's just, you know, it takes two to tango. Yeah, but I can see him being on the raise because um, like they have been looking at, at you know, right-handed bad options. They seem to have not landed one, obviously. So maybe, hey, that's just the way to go. Now, to your point, Upton can pick wherever he wants. He's still getting paid $28 million, to be clear. The Angels are on the hook for, you know, twenty-seven point. Three million of it, and whoever picks him up is going to be on the hook for the yesterday, the rest of it, 0.7. So he's for his perspective. Hey, I'm getting paid 28 million because that's my contract, so I can play wherever I want to. So it's just a matter of okay, okay, what do you got? <laughs> you know, can you give me some playing time? Sure, okay. You gonna go? You gonna be contender? Sure, okay. So yeah, probably not the A's uh, for that reason. So the Rays are probably going to be more likely because the the onus is on him to really pick his spot. There'll be a few teams interested at that price. Yeah, definitely. Okay, now let's uh, move on from the the transactions that did happen and start talking about the ones that haven't, at least at least not yet. And we can talk about whether they think they will happen or not. Um, kind of identified. Th- th- there's plenty of names we could talk about here that are still, you know, tradable and, and still attractive to teams and and could realistically be on the move. Uh, Jose Ramirez being one of them that I don't think we need to talk about much because I think we both agree he's staying put. Uh, at least for this year and there's extension talks ongoing and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the kind of the five that we've identified as guys we want to at least talk about and kind of give our take on are Frankie Montas with the A's. We have him at 39.6. Sean Manaya also with the A's at 14.1. Brian Reynolds with the Pirates at 85. And then Austin Meadows outfielder at 11.1 with the Rays and Kevin Kiermeyer at negative 2.8 with the Rays. So that's kind of... That, I mean, there's going to be moves like like this Jose Trevino one that kind of come out of nowhere and, and yeah, that makes sense, but aren't guys that really have on our radar. But I think these are the five most likely, or at least most most talked about trade candidates right now. Um, so let's, let's start with the A's pitchers here. It's weird to me, and I, as, as someone with at least some level of interest in the A's succeeding long-term, although that interest seems to be waning, <laughs> um, as someone who wants them to do well, it's, it's a curious decision to hang on to them to this point. There's a bit of me that wonders if it was, um, y- you know, they, they weren't getting the offers that they wanted earlier in the spring, so they said, okay, let's, let's hang on to them through the spring and see, you know, maybe a contender will lose a starter and they'll become more desperate and they'll meet the price that we're looking for and we can move them, that kind of thing. Um, but that hasn't exactly happened. 
I I don't know if the A's, if the Mets are going to go back to the well after losing Degrom and go get Manaya too after they already picked up Bassett there. I mean, theoretically, there's an existing relationship there, and they they already have an idea of which prospects the A's like and which ones the Mets are willing to move. So maybe maybe there is something there. You know, the deal could come together quickly, but. Manaya is also making a little bit of money. He's making 10 million this year, and Cohen also isn't really looking to pass the Cohen tax too, too much, to to blow past it too far. So you know maybe not there. Uh, there was talk with the Cardinals that seemed like it didn't quite get anywhere. The A's asking price was too high for them. It seems like uh, the Twins have been heavily interested in both, but they went out and got Chris Archer instead. And I mean, there's still definitely plenty of room in that rotation for one or both of these guys, even with Chris Archer, because who knows how many innings he's going to throw and how good they're going to be. But it, it's it, it's not as certain as I thought it would be. I thought they were both just a lock to be moved. If you asked me three weeks ago, I said I would have said I guarantee both of these guys will be moved before the season. But now it seems like there's a legitimate chance they stay with the team at least to start the year, if if not until the deadline. I, I don't think it's the smartest move, especially for Manaya. Manaya's value is not going any higher than it is right now, and I personally don't don't trust the guy as far as I could throw him. <laughs> but I, uh, I I don't love it. I think it's a little bit risky, uh, but I, I think it's a possibility now that they just hang on to these guys. Yeah, I'm a little surprised as well. Um, I think it's all about um, leverage, you know, and price. Uh, the A's are trying to get their price. Um, by our model, they didn't quite. They came close on the Bassett trade. They were a little short on the Chapman uh, trade. Um, they were fine on the Olsen trade. But I think they want to get fair value for each of these guys. Montas is a little harder to move because he's got two years of control and he's he's a stud and he's uh, priced accordingly. You know, he's so that's going to require some pretty significant prospect capital. And we've seen in this market one of the observations I had teams really are more reluctant than ever to move their top prospects. And that's what it would take. And you see Reynolds uh, hasn't moved yet because of that reason. And I think Montas, you know, the twins, I think were probably the most likely candidate for that. Um, but they would have had to make some serious, uh, you know, uh, cut into their, 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 the top of their, their uh, farm system. So I think that's the main reason there. Um, Manaya seems a lot easier to move. Um, maybe the salary is a little bit of an issue because uh, he costs more in that respect. Um, but I, I just, I, I can't see that being too much of a stumble because what other options do you have? The Twins still need another option. If they're going for it, they signed Correa, so they got to be going for it, right? The Yankees could use another pitcher. The Red Sox could use another pitcher. All these contending teams could use you know, another pitcher. The White Sox have expressed interest. The Mariners have expressed interest. Surely you can negotiate among all those people for just a Manaya. And even if you're... You know, if you get 11 or 12 back instead of 14, which is where we have him, it's not the end of the world. I would take that. Um, so I'm not sure why he hasn't been moved yet. And I agree. Um, the longer they wait, the more his value is going to go down. People might say, yeah, move him at the deadline. Generally speaking, you're not going to get more at the deadline because time will have passed and you're only selling for two months, maybe three. And even if you get a bidding war situation happening there, it's not going to be higher than it is now. So it's either going to stay the same or go down, most likely go down. So why not move him now? And and so there's got to be a deal out there somewhere with one of those teams. And Manaya is maybe not the biggest one in the world, but he's a bit of a health risk and, and a bit of a performance risk. I He, he pitched... You know, he, he was fine last year. You know, he pitched a little bit worse than his FIP, a little bit better than his XERA, you know, somewhere in that gray area. But 
he wasn't that good in 2020 and his velo has just been bumping up and down all over the place the last few years as he's kind of tried to find himself after um, a pretty extensive shoulder surgery back in 2019 so i i don't trust him that, that's kind of what it goes down to every every time he he goes out there it's like okay is, is it going to be the sean Manaya that's touching 95 with the wipeout slider and the good change up and has a chance to throw another no hitter or is it going to be the sean Manaya who's throwing 88 touching 90 and, and really struggling here and you know it, it it felt like he would alternate between those two in some of his starts last year and it's just you know wh- how much rest he had and, and how good he was feeling i I'm scared. I, I'm a lot more optimistic about his performance standpoint uh, than you are, because I think he re, re, uh, he reinvented himself as a crafty lefty, the quintessential crafty lefty. He knew that he wasn't going to throw over 92 even anymore. So he became a control artist. And I was watching a game last summer with, with my son, and I said, look where he's placing the ball. It was the Yankees he was facing. And every time a right-handed hitter would come up, he would pinpoint exactly you know, the high outside corner of the strike zone. He, he noticed that the umpire was calling it strikes. The, the batter couldn't hit it, or if he did, it was weak contact. He just kept putting it there. And then he would go inside and put it there. Like he was completely mastering the strike zone with the stuff that he had. He's become a control artist. And I think that's sustainable. So I think he's valuable from that standpoint. Yeah, that, that's fair. I won't I won't argue that at all. He's a guy with control and command. Like he 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 throws strikes often and he knows where he's throwing them. Um, and that's yeah. and that gives him a high floor where even if his velo is lower, even if he doesn't have the stuff he used to, if he gets banged up or something like that, I don't think you're getting worse than league average innings out of the guy. Um it's just how much better than that. And you know, if if he puts together a first half that is league average innings, you know, you're not looking at a JT Ginn type in return for him, you're looking at a little bit lower than that. And that's, that's, that's a concern. And then there's obviously, you know, you can say it about any pitcher or any player really, but there's the chance that his arm just blows up again and then you get nothing for him. Uh, but it's but, only a year. Come on, you could do worse. It's not that it's not going to take a big hit yeah. out of the farm. I don't see. I really don't see any reason why he shouldn't be be moved. Absolutely, and I can hear the argument for Montas. I also don't think his value is going to get higher than it is. I think he's well. Uh, let me let me count. If he if he has a first half of 2022 that is similar to his second half of 2021 or similar to his shortened uh what what year was that was that 2019 that he was really good yeah his shortened 2019 season before he went down with the ped suspension if he if he has a year like that he goes into the deadline and he's basically jose barrios you know there's some differences there obviously barrios was an Mm -hmm. iron man and just consistent but i think montas his, if, if, if in this hypothetical situation, his performance is, is a lot better. He's looking much more like a number one than, than Barrios did. It was more of just like a quality number two type. And I think he gets that kind of Barrios return uh, from a contender like the Blue Jays in the position that they were in, where, you know, maybe a team like the Tigers, who is starting to be good and wants to be good next year as well and isn't interested in the rental market as much, but will give significant uh, significant talent, significant players for a one and a half year kind of guy like Montas that they can maybe even look into extending. So I, I can see the argument there. Still don't love it. And, and I get that he's a guy where you definitely wait and get the offer. That's, that's fair for his value with how much he's worth. He's worth, uh, I lost the tab. I have so many tabs open. <laughs> he's worth 39.6 million. You're not taking an offer for 
25 or for 30 million in, in value coming back or, or the equivalent off or something along those lines. You're not taking that because he's such a big, right. he, he's the, the last big piece they have until you're talking about Loriano and Murphy um, in terms of rebuilding this farm system and getting the A's back to being competitive again in the next few years. So you, you can't screw that trade up. And yep. I, I, I see the argument to holding him if their offer isn't there right now, but I really expected it to be with just all of the teams that need pitching right now. I expected Montas to be a Minnesota twin by now. I mean, the only other thing I can think about is, you know, he sort of lost the feel for his splitter in 2020 and it affected his performance. And then he got it back again in 2021. So he's a little bit inconsistent. He's always had the easy velocity. He can just pump 97, 98 and not sweat. But it, the splitter was really the game changer for him. When you discovered that in 2019, he was off to the races. He lost it in 2020, got it back in 2021. So maybe you could argue teams are saying, okay, let's just see how it looks in 2022 if he's got that going on again we're all in you know maybe that's the hang up yeah because when he has that splitter on it is like not an exaggeration one of the best pitches in baseball yeah. probably top five top ten that that pitch is untouchable when when he's throwing it where he needs to and if the A's are confident that he has that in him, then, you know, he's going to be one of the best pitchers in baseball the first half of the season. And, you know, teams will be knocking on the door for him at the deadline. So maybe that's the strategy. Yeah, I can see that one. But still still scratching my head a bit at Manaya. I think we're, we're in agreement there. Yeah. Let's move on to Brian Reynolds, because that name was getting a lot of talk this week. There were, there were supposedly discussions between the Pirates and the Padres, and there was a bit of a fake out of, oh, no, Brian Reynolds isn't hitting with his batting practice group this morning. Ah, and that turned into nothing, and, and it seems like they're still pretty far apart. The price is pretty high for him, as it should be. We have him at $85 million. I've kind of been saying this all offseason when it comes to Brian Reynolds, when it comes to Cedric Mullins. Those two are in a fairly similar spot. I think Reynolds is the better and more valuable player, but they're in similar spots with respect to their teams where they just have so much team control. They're so valuable. It's going to be hard for any team to meet that price that, that the team is just that the Pirates or Orioles are justifiably asking for these guys. And so if a team's not going to meet your price, there's no reason to pull the trigger now you know, the value is going to go down. Yes, but it's going to come down into a reasonable territory where either you can decide to move him or maybe you've extended him by that point, or maybe your team is good by that point and you've decided to hold on to him. So there's no rush for either of these teams to move these like top center fielders, even, you know, despite the heavy interest in both of them and the the strong desire, the, the weak center field market in general, um, I think if if either of these guys were available, were going to be moved, I think one of them would be a Miami Marlin by now with how that's looking and how it seemed like the teams might match up okay on, on starting pitching that Miami had. Uh, but given that nothing has happened, I, it's safe to say I think that these guys are staying put for now. Yeah, I think this is a classic case of the market not meeting the price. And, you know, the they're right to value if we're right then he's around 85 it's really hard to put that kind of package together that would make sense for the pirates the padres don't quite have that amount of capital 
and at least not in terms of prospects that they're willing to give up unless they were to give up J.J. Abrams as the lead piece because that's what it would take. The Marlins don't have that either. They have an interesting farm, but it's a lot of kind of 20s and teens guys and not like a lead piece. It's 50 or 60 or some one of those like Abrams is. So it's, and, you know, and as we've said before, teams don't want to move those guys. Those are their future stars. But look, I mean, if you're the Pirates, you're saying, well, Brian Reynolds is already a star. He's a five and a half war player and he's under control for four years. and He hasn't even hit his prime yet. He's not even 27 yet. So you got to figure, you know, they don't have to trade him. They can just wait, you know, so the market hasn't met their price and that's okay. It doesn't mean that's not his price. It just means that um, it's not the right time. So and, you know, and a year from now, he'll have three years of control. The value may go down a little bit, depends how he does. But if he rakes again and does another five or six war, you know, maybe even does better than that, then you're still going to have a very, very high priced asset for three years. And But maybe at that point, you know, maybe your farm system is starting to yield some results and Pittsburgh starting to show some life on the major league level. Maybe say, OK, we're going to build around him. So there's no reason to trade him at all because you have so many options. So many things could go your way. There's nothing forcing you to trade him now, which is another reason why you should hold on to that price. So it doesn't make any sense to move him for less. Yeah, for for the Padres, you mentioned it earlier, he's essentially going to cost you C.J. Abrams and then some. And that's that's if the Pirates value cj abrams as highly as our model does which is you know a bit of a question mark the guy just came off a very significant leg injury and he's never been a huge power guy and so there's and and they're pretty deep in middle infielders although that's that's never your number one hold up when it comes to a deal for a prospect you typically just take the best talent available but when it's coming into a deal this this big and when you're looking for reasons to dislike it if you're the pirates i think that's that's worth noting Uh, but it's going to cost you abrams plus and I don't think the Padres are having any interest in moving Abrams right now, let alone plus. <laughs> so I, I don't yeah. see it for them. I don't see it for any team right now. We're going to keep hearing buzz. It's going to be the Jose Ramirez. You know, we've, we've been hearing about Jose Ramirez trades for like two or three years now. <laughs> and it's going to be the same thing. We're going to keep hearing about him. Maybe eventually he gets moved, but it, it's not going to be for a little while, I don't think. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think it's a reasonable argument to say, look, the Pirates don't really need to move him because they don't need yet more prospects. They've already got one of the strongest farms in the in the league, and they're waiting for all these guys to come up. And like, Granted, maybe not all of them will make it, but, you know, there's a lot of prospects coming in Pittsburgh. And so, like, why do you need even more, you know? So unless you want it to fit your timeline, unless you don't think you're going to be competitive until 2024 or so, you know, so then you could argue, well, all right, so we're wasting two years of Brian Reynolds. But you're not really, you're just sort of seeing what you've got. You know, like I said, you can trade him next year if you want. You can trade him anytime you want, you know. And if the more you know about how your farm is developing, the more, you know, you'll be able to come come to light, that will come to light. So right now you can just sit and wait. But, you know, you could argue that you don't need to trade him because you've already got plenty of prospects. Definitely. All right, the last two I want to talk about in this in this category here of the guys that haven't been traded and could are the two Rays guys, Meadows and Kiermeyer. So there was a report by Ken Rosenthal that prior to the Kimbrel Pollock trade, the White Sox offered Craig Kimbrel for Austin Meadows, uh, and the Rays justifiably said no, that's not going to work for us. So we had we had Kimbrel at negative one in trade value, have Meadows at positive eleven point one, so there's obviously a big gap there. And I think you can make the argument that 
Kimbrel would be even lower to a team like the Rays. So we've talked yeah. before about how our, our values are kind of the, the median values, you know, kind of what the average team would value a player as. But for a team like the Dodgers, $16 million on Kimbrel's contract is not as big of a deal as it is to the Rays. The, the, the Rays, that $16 million could stop them from making multiple other moves, could really hamstring them this season. And so they're they're far less likely to take on a deal like that than, than a larger market team. So that just widens the gap. Um, they were hesitant to move Meadows at, you know, it's a bit of a sell low right now coming off of not a great season. Plus he has a couple years of control remaining. Uh, so it, it makes sense that he wasn't moved there. Uh, his his name has been in the news when it comes to, uh, I, I believe he was connected to the Phillies as well. But that was prior to the uh, the Castiano signings. So they're probably out on that. I, they don't have anywhere to play the guy unless they're bumping Bryce Harper to center field, which probably isn't advised. Um, we're kind of running out of spots here. I could see the Padres making a, a push for him. It kind of just depends on what the what the Rays are looking for in return, and and it's it's not a clean fit there. I don't think. Really, it seems more yeah. realistic that they hang on to him into the season. Um, I'm still. Just really quick on, on Kiermaier, I'm still shocked he's not a Philly. Uh, there was there was a <laughs> we talked before about why there was kind of initial holdup with him. It was about the new CBA and how the new CBA calculates um, luxury tax contracts. And so when a guy is traded, his new luxury tax value is based on how much of the contract is remaining after the trade. And so for a guy like Kiermaier, who was on a backloaded deal in the last year of it. His current annual AAV for uh, luxury tax purposes is like six or seven million, uh, but if he were traded, I believe it would be thirteen or something like that. Um, it would be fourteen if he were traded, and so that yeah. difference was enough to put the at the time was enough to put the, uh, the excuse me the Phillies over the luxury tax threshold, and they weren't interested in doing that. Then they went out and got Nick Castellanos and pushed past, <laughs> past the luxury tax threshold. I think they need Kevin Kiermeyer, and I'm shocked they haven't done it yet. It, it makes me think that maybe the Rays are valuing him more highly than we have him here. Uh, they, they just really like him. They like the defense. Um, but if, if you're not going to get Kiermeyer, then go get Brett Phillips or Manuel Margot. They, you, you need a center fielder who has a glove, Phillies. Uh, get one of these Rays guys. I'm, I'm shocked it hasn't happened. Uh, I'm not shocked because nobody wants to pay that much for a glove for center fielder who's never been above average with the bat. And you could just, you know, sign Juan Lagares or Jake Marisnik or one of those guys with a glove. I mean, they're, they're basically going to cost you a million dollars. You know, I don't understand why anyone would. Uh, I, I get that Kiermaier is a cut above those guys in terms of performance, but he is getting older. He just came off a double knee surgery. I mean, there's a lot of red flags there, and you really don't want to pay that much. I don't think they've traded him because they don't like to make negative value deals, as I've heard from our raise experts on the site. And so they're kind of stuck with him because um, nobody wants to take that contract, especially in light of the point you just made. Um, just to circle back to Meadows and Kimbrell for a second, um, there was a report also that said that the Rays turned that down flat because they didn't value Kimbrell at as high as his salary, is $16 million. And so my reaction to that was, well, great. We agree, Rays. <laughs> we didn't value him that, at, at that price either. So there was no way. Like, that wasn't even close. And so it's, it seems to make sense from our model standpoint. Um, 
I think they're just floating meadows um, just to see if they can get like a fair offer for him because it's what the Rays do. He's now well into his arbitration years. I think he only has two control, two years of control now. And so they're, you know, they're typically turning over their roster as these guys get older, they skew younger. So it's the next man up kind of thing, restock the farm kind of thing. So I think that's all it is. And also, you know, he's got a little bit of value based on his track record. Um, so he could potentially regress to his mean positively and outperform last year. So there's some interest there, maybe. Uh, so he's more movable than Kiermaier, definitely, from that standpoint. He doesn't cost as much from a salary standpoint either. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him moved at some point in the next few days for those reasons. And I think they are shopping for a right-handed bat, although there doesn't seem to be one out there unless they pick up Upton. I'm confused about the Rays in general. And I mean, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a sentence that anyone could say it's an ever yeah. evergreen sentence <laughs> anyone could say that at any time and, and be pretty just but it, they're basically menudo right just like the old guy leaves and then they replace him with the new kid you know it's just like that's all they do yeah yeah i i am on board with that i understand the raise from that <laughs> i don't understand the raise off season i i wrote a, a roster revamp about them during the lockout and since then they've done nothing <laughs> they they signed jason adam and luke bard uh, a couple of relievers to uh, Adam gets a big league deal. Barr gets a minor league deal. And yeah, okay. Both of those guys are going to be stud relievers for them in a couple months, whatever it happens. It's the Rays. Uh, but yeah. prior to the lockout, all they really did was pick up Corey Kluber and Brooks Raley. And they traded away uh, uh, a couple guys in, um, excuse me, blanking. <laughs> they, they, they traded a, away a couple guys and Joey Wendell and Jordan Luplow and, and Mike Brassow. Yep. That, that was about it. Oh, and they, they've picked up Harold Ramirez and Luke Rayleigh in a couple of minor trades uh, as right. well, which, you know, role players for them. I like Harold Ramirez a lot. I feel like they're going to make him a stud, uh, but that's, that's besides the point. They, they just haven't done much to address their other weaknesses. And it feels like a part of the reason why could be money. They have been aggressive. They were in on Freddie Freeman until the end and potentially made him a larger offer than the Dodgers did. Uh, they were in on Matt Chapman. They were in on uh, on the outskirts of Matt Olson. There were a couple other big deals, uh, big players that they were, you know, checking in on and, and had some interest in and were, were looking into. But they haven't pulled anything off. And I think they're fine if they don't do anything. I still think they're one of the top teams in the in the east and they're going to be competitive and be pushing for the division title and and if not the title then at least the playoffs and one of those wild card spots but i feel like we're we're waiting for something to happen i feel like something's got to give they have a pretty crowded farm system especially on the middle infield they have some holes in the big league team they could really use a, a major league quality starter to kind of shore out the rotation uh, pulling up their depth charts right now. As we discussed, they could also use a solid right-handed bat. They still have Yandy Diaz as kind of their everyday guy at third base. And, you know, maybe maybe the door's kind of closed on a third baseman after Chapman's off the market, but you'd really expect them to be able to do a little bit better than that. Right now, Yarbrough and Patino are their fourth and fifth starters, and, and Patino, they, they like him, okay. Yarbrough had a rough year last year. It, it felt like it was time for them to move on from him. I don't know. It, it feels like they should have something else in the tank and maybe they do and they were just waiting to for it to come through in the last week of spring training first couple weeks of the season kind of thing uh, i'm definitely keeping an eye on them because it's it's uncharacteristic how quiet they've been 
yeah, they are, you know, hands down the most transactional organization of baseball, I believe. I, I think there's been some some articles about that. So, you know, you think, oh, my gosh, they're, you know, the Rays haven't made a train. You know, like Jerry DePoto, of course, if the Mariners has that reputation as well. But, the more, the, you know, he's one guy. But the Rays as an organization historically are that's what they do is they transact, they transact, they buy low, sell high, buy low, sell high. And so um, to see them this inactive is weird. I'm just it's weird yes i know they've been to the deep into the playoffs the last two years so maybe they can say okay we're good we got we got a core we're happy with the core you know pick up a couple of relievers on the edges do do that thing but other than that yeah i mean they have i think they definitely need to move a center field because they really want to play josh low in center field and so they've got too many guys there. And we just talked about Kiermaier. Why he hasn't moved, at least my theory. So they got to move Margot. I think you mentioned this. Or Phillips, one of those guys to clear a roster spot. I can see that happening. Um, but I, you could argue that, you know, they're actually not bad. I mean, they go with young starters in the bulk sort of way. So I think they're okay there. they got a good bullpen. They're okay there. The lineup's fairly deep. You know, it's one of those lineups with a lot of two war players instead of one superstar other than Franco. So I think they're okay there like they're just around the edges maybe that's the reason maybe it's just sort of occam's razor it is what it is you know um there's not that much to do yeah and at the very least you know if you're the rays worst case you hang on to all these guys and reevaluate in a couple months you know see who gets hurt who unperform underperforms who's available at the deadline and and strike then or being the Rays, they're no strangers to dealing before the deadline either. They traded Willie Adamas early last year, yeah. and it worked out really well for them. It worked out really well for both teams, but uh, it, it helped them out a lot. Drew Rasmussen is looking really, really good. They picked him up there. Uh, so it, it, there's no – I think this year more than ever, the start of the season is not a like soft trade deadline. Like It kind of gets treated sometimes. Right. We I think we'll see some – I don't know if it's going to be a huge flurry of moves or any giant moves or anything, but I think we're going to see some deals kind of trickle into the season. Yeah, because the hot stove, hot stove was delayed, and so yeah. there's a it isn't quite done yet. I mean, we had some rumors of a blockbuster in the last couple of days, but nothing. So it makes you think that, okay, teams are still kind of trying to fill holes, and in some cases they need to have a big hole or two to fill, and so maybe that hasn't happened yet, and maybe it could in the next couple of weeks. I get that. Um, so, yeah, I could see that. I mean, there will be the usual sort of very minor ones just to fill a need here and there. Um, one other player that comes to mind with the Rays is Taylor Walls, uh, who briefly was their starting shortstop until Wonder Franco came up, and really good glove, versatile, Probably an average bat, but excellent glove. You'd think maybe a guy like him would be of interest to the Angels, but maybe they can't afford him at the prospect price. You know, there's there's one or two teams that could use a shortstop that you think, okay, maybe he could go there. Um, so I'm surprised he, a little bit surprised he hasn't been moved yet. Yeah, I'm in agreement there. Either him or even like a Xavier Edwards type, although that one's a little tougher because mm-hmm. he's not quite as big league ready. Uh, but they just have kind of a middle infield glut that goes all the way up and down their farm system. And that's not a bad thing. You know, those guys can always move to other positions. That's that's part of what makes middle infielders so valuable is that they're typically really good athletes and they can move around the diamond later on if you need them to, whether it's to the corner spots or even the outfield. But it, it seems like something they, the Rays are no strangers to capitalizing on something like that. Yeah. All right. 
now we uh it's been a while since we've done this but we have an article to talk about we have a a trade a single trade proposal this time it's not a whole article's worth uh, but one trade proposal from a reporter that really just has us scratching our heads here uh it, it's it's ugh. so this is from <laughs> this is from jen mccaffrey of the athletic and as, as I always have to preface whenever we talk about this kind of stuff, it's, it's nothing at all against Jen McCaffrey. I, I don't know her. I, I don't really follow her writing too closely. I've, I've probably read an article here and there. Uh, so I don't, I don't know much of anything about her as a reporter, about her background, whatever. But in her most recent, uh, it might not even be her most recent, from a couple days ago, <laughs> she wrote about the uh, Boston Red Sox. Uh, answering a mailbag, part two of it. It's titled Righty Bats, Lefty Bats, and How Many of Each You Really Need to Have, Red Sox Mailbag, Part Two. And this is on The Athletic. It'll be linked in the show notes. And, you know, most of these questions are just kind of minutia about how the Red Sox are going to handle their lineup, how they're going to handle their outfield, fourth outfielders, stuff like that. And then we get to a question. You can only trade for one. Who do you go for? Pittsburgh outfielder Brian Reynolds, Oakland starter Frankie Montas, or Milwaukee closer Josh Hader? What do you think it would cost Boston? From Doug S. via the Athletic app. And she explains that Reynolds is going to be costly, and and she actually doesn't even mention Hader at all in her response, but most of it is about Montas as, as kind of her preferred option of those three for the Red Sox to pick up, which makes sense. They have an obvious need in the rotation. Her proposed package is, and I'll quote, I feel like a comparable Red Sox package, and, and that's being comparable to the A's return for Chris Bassett from the Mets, which is already a red flag, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> I feel like a comparable Red Sox package might be Jay Groom and Brandon Walter. Walter's a bit older, but has interesting upside in a breakout 2021 season, and Groom is still a top five Red Sox pitcher hoping to make his big league debut this year. Given Montas is younger and comes with an extra year of control compared to Bassett, the Red Sox might have to add another lower-level prospect to this package, but I definitely consider making that deal. And you're right. You're, you're, you're right, Jen McCaffrey. You would consider making that deal, so would the Red Sox. The A's would laugh them out the door. So we have, uh, plugging the values in, as I mentioned, Montas at 39.6. We have Jay Groom at 3.5 and, and Walter at 4.4. So it's 39.6 headed to the Red Sox and 7.9 to Oakland. So this is a package that doesn't even come like it barely gets halfway to the Bassett return because Groom, you know, he was a former, I believe he was a former first round pick. He was a former very top prospect, but kind of flamed out. He's kind of starting to make some noise again. So he's had, he's having kind of a resurgence in his career, but that's not the same as a guy like JT Ginn who, was just a first rounder and the only real issue that he has is is a Tommy John surgery which we talked about might not even be that much of an issue especially for Oakland and then Walter who she mentions is older and you know a bit older but interesting upside after a breakout 2021 season he he's a prospect clearly but that's that's also just not like a it's not a pedigree guy I'm pulling him up right now um but he's not a name I had personally heard of for whatever that is worth, which isn't a whole lot. Um, I'm <laughs> feeling he's he's probably a mid-round pick. He was a 26th round pick in 2019, which, you know, that's not, it doesn't matter once we get that far off. It's not a huge deal what round they were picked in. It matters, you know, what they've done for me lately. It's a 45 final value, or excuse me, 45 future value on fan graphs. He's 25 and a half years old and he has not made it past high A. So that kind of just, 
tells you what you need to know there. Like, yeah, he's got some value. Yeah, he might develop into a good pitcher. It might not happen until he's 27 or 28, and he might never be more than a mid or back rent, back end arm. He's not. He's also not JT Ginn. So you have two guys who aren't JT Ginn, who are more valuable than Adam Aller, who comes in the Bassett deal, sure, but they're not JT Ginn. And as as Jen McCaffrey mentions, Montas is younger and comes with an extra year of control. And her response to that is the Red Sox might have to add another lower-level prospect, which is just completely misreading. Like, I don't understand what's being missed there, but an extra year of control means that from a starting point, even if they were similarly, um, (laughs) similarly talented pitchers and similarly aged pitchers and similarly costed cost uh, as far as salary pitchers, an extra year of control means that Montas needs to be twice as valuable as Bassett, mm-hmm. correct? <laughs> so mm-hmm. how does another lower level prospect make up twice the value difference? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing where you can see their progression. You, you can see uh, where, where their thought process went and how they got to this. And it makes it, it I can see it making sense to somebody. It, 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 this isn't just pulled completely out of left field. It's okay. I see a top starting pitcher. This is what the A's got in the last one. Let's try and match that deal as closely as we can because that's what they just traded a pitcher for. But it's just it's a fundamental misunderstanding of value and of how much value comes with things like age and cost control and, and additional years yeah. and <clears throat> market demand and, and things like that and what makes a prospect valuable. And it's just a misunderstanding of all of these things. And it's kind of just a reminder of what kind of helped launch baseball trade values as a site. And it's just, you know, reporters yeah. and fans alike, not understanding these things the way that teams do. And, and the way that we, we believe that we do. Now, look, we are blessed that a lot of really well-known and good reporters are now like citing us as a source. Um, I, Scott Glover of the Philadelphia Inquirer a couple times recently wrote articles about, oh, here's some trades that the Phillies could make using our site. You know, others have done it as well. I think Grant, Grant Brisby in the Athletic has done it. A lot of other good reporters, because I think they are wise enough to know that they are words people and not numbers people, and they're not. Their strength is not trade value, and more reporters, I think, should uh, realize that. It's hard. I can't think of a single reporter, frankly, who understands trade value, and so when they're asked this question, what do you think it would return, would get, I would advise most reporters to check our site rather than just making it up, because that's kind of what they're doing. Like, well, this one got that, so I think so. I mean, there was, uh, I think a year or so ago, a reporter who cited the, um, you remember the Cozart deal, the Giants, where they picked up uh, Will Wilson, and one of them said, oh, well, that's what a prospect is worth as if every prospect was worth that. This was an actual reporter in the athletic, I can't remember who it was, but like as if every prospect in the universe was worth eight. You know, like this is ridiculous. David O'Brien last year when Jose Barrios was um, potentially available at the deadline said, oh, the Braves should trade for him. They should give up Camargo and Tuki Tucson, whose values were like zero and 0.1. I mean, these guys have, I'm sorry, they don't know what they're doing. This is not a space that they're good, that, that they should be in. So please, reporters, stop. Admit that you don't know anything about trade value and stop doing this. Please use our site. That it's what that's what it's there for. Absolutely, it's 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 similar to 
a just generic reporter trying to give like like swing tips or something in an article like that's that's not what you do i i acknowledge that there are people who do like you know there are higher level uh, you know analytical writers and you know saris or, or somebody like that oh, with fan yeah. graphs who can adjust or who can recommend specific adjustments or say hey spin rate's low on this pitch if he were able to pick that up he'd be a much more successful pitcher whatever things like that but that's very different from, you know, being the, the armchair manager, armchair hitting coach, whoever, who's saying, oh, he's got to ditch the leg kick because that'll fix him or, or whatever. And I feel like as as a whole, generally reporters have kind of acknowledged that that's not their territory, that that's not something that they do, at least the good ones. And and they kind yeah. of stay away from that kind of thing. They let the, the coaches and players themselves kind of speak for it. And so this is, we just need more of them to acknowledge that this is a similar territory, that yep. it's it's much more complicated than it might seem at first glance. And it's not as simple as just, this is this, so this is that, like this happened this one time, so everything is like this. Like like the, what, what you just mentioned with the Cozart and Will Wilson and that, that kind of thing, it reminds me of Dave Stewart when he traded... <laughs> Tuki Toussaint and, and Bronson Arroyo's contract to the Braves, he said something about how, oh, well, Tuki Toussaint's signing bonus was $4 million or whatever, so that's what he's worth. And it's just a, yeah, right. That's from somebody who's running a team, which is a whole different discussion. But it's just a, right. a fundamental misunderstanding of how the economic system in baseball works and where value comes from. Yeah. I remember um, kudos to... Lindsay Adler of The Athletic, who covers the Yankees, said, look, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not a transaction reporter. She's she's wise enough to say, I'm going to focus on things I do better. <laughs> she's not going to get into this territory. And more should be like her, please. Absolutely. And, and I want to just just quietly, briefly mention that I, I have a journalism background. That That's not me. <laughs> so, uh, A, I'm not sitting here saying, like, ah, the, yeah. that dang flabbing media, they always get it wrong. They, they don't know math. I'm not here saying that. I'm also not here saying that, like, because I have a journalism background, everything I say about journalism is fact. That is not it at all. There's there, I'm, I'm not currently working in journalism. That I'm no expert. A, a lot of these people know way more about that field than I do. Uh, I also will say from experience that, and many will admit it, journalists are notoriously bad at math. And so maybe maybe leave that to the math people. That's why they picked that line of work. Absolutely. All right, so we are wrapping up here. We, we've already gone past the hour and a half mark, but I think we have a chance to finish pretty close to it. We just have a few more things to hit on. So uh, first, John has some updates here in terms of prospects who are rising up the rankings, rising up our value, as well as um, some injury cases that are kind of affecting value in a negative way. So take it away, John. So prospects, um, so for the most part, you know, as you know, whenever... Uh, one of our sources updates their prospect evaluations. Um, they, those ratings will change and those will translate into numbers changes on our site. There's been a few interesting ones uh, lately. Um, Daniel Espino of the Cleveland Guardians was given a big write-up from Eric Longenhagen uh, of Fangraphs, who's you know one of the, the sources we check. Um, basically jumped him up to a 60 rating from, a, I believe it was a 50 before, and that really affected his value. So his value is now up to, I think, 40. It was in the low 20s before. Um, Baseball America has also 
mentioned him as one of those, you know, uh, who is outstanding stuff. And so I can see a bump coming from them as well. So we've um, given them a little bit of a 10% bump, even though it's not official. So Espino definitely rose, took a big jump. And so some of the users of our site, uh, a guy named Big Bad is one of them who's been sort of pounding the table. Hey, Espino is too low. Well, you're right. He was too low, or at least we didn't have the documented source to justify that. Now we do. So now he's higher. Um, another one that has risen a little bit is McKinsey Gore of the Padres. Um, he had been, his value had really dropped. His, his stock had dropped uh, because he just could not, he was a mess last year, to be honest. He had lost his mechanics. He was dropping down prospect uh, rankings and ratings. And, um, but then this spring, he's looked like a totally different pitcher. I know that the Padres have a new uh, pitching coach who came from the Cleveland system. Obviously, they know how to develop pitching. Uh, I don't know if he's been working with McKenzie Gore or not, but he's he's looking great and like he should have looked uh, two years ago. So, you know, we've bumped him up a little bit. It's unusual for us to do that based on spring training, but this is sort of a binary case where he's either fixed or not fixed. It looks like he's fixed, in which case his value could be skyrocketing from here if it continues to develop and continues to demonstrate that he can be effective and that his mechanics are, are now sound then you'll see him start to go up as well we're not going to take that big of a jump so far because we don't have anything to base it on other than that and you know people like baseball america saying oh yeah he looks different until they come through with you know okay we're definitely bumping him up then you know we're going to hold off on that but we wouldn't be surprised if he was traded for a much higher value, then we bumped him up from like nine to like 14. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he were valued that, you know, significantly higher by the Padres, because it may be one of those cases where it's not just a, a small trend, it's a big fix. It's like, oh, he's now fixed his mechanics and now he's off to the races. So he's one to watch. Um, a few other sort of sources, like um, I mentioned Fangraphs, um, they still haven't updated all of their prospect lists for the off season. Um, unfortunately, they tend to be very slow. So some some numbers will change as they get around to finally doing that for some of the other teams they haven't covered yet. Um, so you'll see continuous change there. And now as the minor league system gets going and we start to see performances, it'll be a while because we want to avoid small sample sizes. But once we get a month or two of data in, we'll start to see some sort of breakout performers or some people who we thought were going to be good or not. And so we'll start to see a little bit of variance there. Uh, so we're keeping an eye on that space in general. So those, but Espino and Gore are two to watch right now. All right, just just quickly on on the prospect topic, um, it, it kind of goes to what we were just kind of suggesting when it comes to reporters and and math. It's it's that we aren't prospect guys. We tend to stay in our lane. We wait for we'll, we will make some some slight adjustments based on in season performance, but in general we're waiting for the prospect experts to let us know that yes, their opinion on him has changed. He is looking more valuable than he used to. And so when you see a prospect that you think is low, you know, if, if it's if it's a situation as we get into the season here where he's crushing the ball for the first couple months of the year and, you know, it's coming with a, a low strikeout rate and low BABIP or something or whatever, if it's an actual performance thing, let us know and we'll take a look and see if we haven't already updated him for performance a little bit. But Otherwise, if you're coming to us and saying that this prospect is too low or this prospect is too high, we really need some some supporting evidence. <laughs> we need we need a, a prospect source to kind of confirm that before we're really going to make any significant changes here. Because if it, if it were just all entirely subjectively up to us, I'd have a guy like Stephen Kwan at like 20 or 25 million in trade value because I love the guy. 
but we can't do that. <laughs> we have to be, right. we can't be subjective and picking our favorites here because that's just, that's not going to lead to, to accurate results in the model. Okay. And then the next topic I wanted to just touch on is injury cases. So obviously injury risk is a component of our model because it does affect our value. If a guy gets injured a lot, you know, that's going to be, if you, you know, you're probably not going to want to trade for him. And just, we just mentioned, you know, the Mets, you know, putting the kibosh in a deal that, you know, could have involved them acquiring Chris Paddock, who had a UCL tear last year. So maybe that was the stopper. But look, Jacob deGrom is obviously going to miss a significant amount of time based on his latest injury. So his value has really gone down as a result of that. His situation is a little bit unique because he has an opt-out at the end of this year. So we're valuing him at basically half a year. It's still an elite half a year. Um, but if you see his value uh, go down, that's why, because he's going to miss about half the year given time to, he's going to be out for at least four weeks and then he's got to sort of re-ramp back up. And then who knows, you know, if that injury is going to persist or not. So to, to some extent, some, sometimes we get asked, like, how are you measuring that? What is your source? Um, it is, it is, um, it's, it's an art. It's not a science. At least we're not doctors. We're not medical experts. We're just going mostly by estimates on playing time. But I do want to call out um, Will Carroll, uh, who's a journalist, he used to work for Baseball Perspectives, kind of got his niche in covering these medical issues. Um, and now he's become like an expert in the field. He's written a book about it. And he has a Substack uh, newsletter and blog about it uh, called Under the Knife, which I highly recommend. And what he does is basically write about all these injury cases and what to expect for them, which ones are more serious than other ones. And so that's becoming a little bit more informative, at least from my point of view, to say, okay, like the... Um, the Andrew Vaughn situation where he sort of fell on his hip and he got carted off looked serious. Turns out it's not. It's just worse. And and so like you, you can put those things in perspective. The DeGrom injury could be more serious uh, because it, you know he was saying that the that particular um, the scapula or something you know it's 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 it reaction is sort of the precursor to a fracture. And if if it's if it's not you know that's why they're taking time off. But if it, if it were to get any worse, it would have been fractured, and then he would have been out for the whole season. So that stuff is really important to know. So when you see adjustments on our site based on that, we're trying to get the most informed sources. We're trying to base it on, you know, a playing time. We're trying to base it on an injury history because we've said in the past that, you know, the best um, predictor of future injury is previous injury. Uh, we mentioned Kevin Kiermaier having double knee surgery, and that's affecting his value a little bit. Some more recent cases, Evan White had. Uh, hernia, hernia surgery he was already a very um negative value case and that's just making it even worse poor guy um pete fairbanks reliever for the rays is going to be out for a while uh, with something that looks fairly serious according to what i've been reading um and, and garrick crochet is going to miss the entire season with tommy john surgery and that's not a surprise either because he's had scares in the past uh, with his elbow and now it's coming to light and so another thing that i've, I've been learning as i've researched to this is you know everything is interconnected if a guy has one sort of issue don't be surprised if that issue either that same issue comes up again or something else along the chain happens as a result of that issue and that seems to be what happens what's happening with Degrom, who had an elbow issue and then, you know, if that gets fixed, maybe, you know, something else along the chain, now it's a shoulder. So something's a little off there. And I can know, I know from previous experience as a competitive athlete that, you know, 
the weak, you're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain and your body can overcompensate if something goes wrong in one sense and it could compensate and cause another problem in another sense. So a long story short is we're paying attention to all this stuff. We're getting more sort of detailed information now, what matters and what doesn't, and you'll see values change on the side as a result. Sounds good. I don't, I don't think I have anything to add on the injury side of it. Just wanted to very quickly say um, that uh, Evan White, in a similar kind of case in Scott Kingery, those are the example of the early season uh, or early career extension that works out quite well for the player. You know, we see a lot of these early career extensions and you see the dollar value be so low and their, their, um, their trade value as a result kind of skyrockets so high because they have all of this prospect hype and pedigree and you project so much value out of them, but sometimes prospects don't work out. And so those two guys, John Singleton those examples it's it's good on those guys that that's that's why those players take those early career um extensions it's because you know things can work out like this and you know the book's not closed on kingery and it's even less closed on evan white but it's it's certainly not looking good for either of those guys and they've at least locked in a a sizable living and, and perhaps enough to to live out the rest of their lives on yeah good for them for doing that definitely all right what do you expect in the next uh week or two here uh, as we wrap up spring training i have no idea josh i, I you know we were talking earlier about how there is probably going to be a little bit of a carryover effect now having said that you know we're talking about human beings here and they need to know like where they're living and if they're married and with the kids and where their family's moving you know the minor league season is about to get started and so guys are being told right now whether they made the major league team or not because they need to know, hey, am I am I moving to Vegas or Oakland? Like, where, where am I going? And so uh, a lot of those announcements are happening now. Um, and so you got to factor that in. I've heard other GMs say, look, these are real people. We're trying not to disrupt their lives too much. So in that sense, I don't think we're going to see too many. I, I think the blockbusters are going to be few and far between. We might see one or two, but I think the season of like the real big hot stove season is mostly done um, with the exception of maybe one or two carryovers. Like we had heard some buzz about, you know, with Hosmer, um, you know, but I, I, it sounds like we're not, it's probably not going to happen with, um, as we talked about earlier with uh, Reynolds, uh, he's probably not moving. It kind of is what it is at this point. Um, I think Manaya will get moved. Montas probably not. And unless another major injury goes down and somebody gets desperate, um, you know, but we'll see some little ones around the edges as guys get DFA'd or a hole needs to, you know, somebody gets injured and, you know, you need a minor trade here and there, just like the Jose Trevino trade earlier. So you're going to see little things like that as you typically do. But it's mostly going to be quiet once the season starts, with the exception of a few things like that. I think you're a little bit more uh, more optimistic about the morality of MLB front office executives than <laughs> I am. <laughs> because, I mean, okay, we, we've seen in the past the Craig Kimbrell trade uh, to the Padres that was. Yeah, that was like on opening day or the day before opening day a few years back. Um, this... <laughs> This spring, we've seen the Kyle Tyler saga. Have you, have you been following that story? And um, I know about his transactions, but I don't, I don't think the human side of the story. If, well, is that what you're getting at? There, there was a tweet about uh, uh, just his kind of timeline of events. There, basically, he started out with the Angels, oh, right. was DFA'd by them, and and they play in Arizona in the Cactus League. Was claimed by the Boston Red Sox, so traveled out to to boston uh, to excuse me to florida since they play in the grapefruit league 
went out to the field, played catch, was called back in, told, sorry, you're you're being DFA'd again. We just, I, I forget who they picked up, but they, they picked someone up and had to DFA him. So they did that, and then the Padres claimed him, so he went straight back to Arizona. <laughs> so, and that's for Kyle Tyler. That's for a guy who, you know, best case scenario, he's a, a middle reliever, probably. So, uh, if they're willing to jockey a guy like that, it, it, then I think they're willing to disrupt some livelihoods to get an impact player on their team. So, I, I could I could see it being a factor for some teams and some deals, and maybe they just another another reason to hold off wait a couple months before they reevaluate some of these things but i, I still think we'll see a, a fair bit of activity i hope you're right i hope so as well all right anything else you want to hit on I, I, we we got to an hour 45 I I, i'm happy with that yeah i think we're good cool all right that'll do it for this week then thank you all so much for listening if you have any comments or questions feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Baseball Values. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe, enjoy the end of spring training and the beginning of the regular season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.